Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really great to have you here. On today's episode, producer extraordinaire, sublime sideman, and all-around rad dude Don Dixon swings by the Shedio to talk about R.E.M., Guadalcanal Diary, Tommy Keen, The Smithereens, and Spending a Life in Music. Let's get into it. It's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really great to have you here. Uh, busy show today. Lots going on. This is the first pod that I have recorded in the Shedio since I got home from my trip to Central America with my mom. I want to thank you all again for all of your support, the kind things you had to say, and the way that you paid attention. I was really quite touched and impressed at... Uh, how much all of you really seem to resonate and appreciate my missives from Central America. Uh, if you're not paying attention to the blog, you may not have known that uh, I I posted a, a thing every day called missives from Central America, where I recapped the day before that my mom and I had with photos and stories of what we had done and kind of what we got out of the experience. It was really wonderful to be able to share that with you guys. And it was Obviously, really wonderful to have two full weeks with my mother. Uh, if you haven't gone back and listened to last week's episode, episode 53, Travel Talk with Deborah Carlson, you can sit down and listen to my chat with my mom and I kind of rehashing our experience in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Uh, don't forget that uh, WAIM Radio is uh, is out there on the airwaves every week. Uh, the show goes up live at suburbsradio.com every Friday at noon and then is archived here each Tuesday. And you can go back into the archive section at whatamimaking.substack.com and go listen to any of the old radio shows anytime you'd like. We also have had a couple of recent... Uh, guest appearances in the 13 Films to Get to Know Me series. My old friend and bandmate, uh, Jay Virus, uh, from my days in Third Uncle. He and I were in a band, got 30 years ago now. And Jay stopped by and shared his 13 films, and we had an absolute blast. In fact, we've even recorded a podcast where we talk a little bit about Jay's list, and then we talk a lot about travel. So uh, expect that to be coming soon. And uh, we also had one from my friend and terrific Substacker Kevin Alexander uh, from his Substack on repeat. And uh, Kevin's list was really fun. He he claims he's not a movie guy, so make sure you go check those two out. Uh, I am working on a couple more of these, and I would love to work with you. Do you have uh, some excitement that you want to share? Do you have some uh, some films you want to you, you wanna give to us to let us know what your life is like? Share your list of 13 films with us. Email me at whatamimakingblog at gmail.com, or you can uh, start the conversation by leaving me a message at speakpipe.com slash what am I making? You guys aren't using this SpeakPipe thing. And if you call me and you leave me a voicemail, I'll play it on the show probably. So you should do that so you can get on the show and have something worthwhile to say. But uh, I would love to know questions, queries, brownie recipes, whatever you got. Let me let me know. Um, hit me up. What am I making? Blog at gmail.com. 
tell me you want to do your 13 films list, and I'll help you put it together. It'll be fun. Don't forget that, uh, speaking of movies, March 13th, we are doing a very special Q&A discussion and live screening of the Swedish classic My Life as a Dog on March 13 at the Robin Theater. You can get tickets at the Robin Theater. That's T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot com. The Robin Theater, R-E dot Get your tickets today. I really want to sell this thing out. The last thing I want to make sure you're doing is, are you paying attention to the best band of the bracket, uh, best band of the 90s bracket challenge? Uh, We are literally at the end of the quarterfinal round. If you were listening to this on Monday, if you're listening to it after Monday, the 26th of February, uh, that voting is closed and we're already down to the semis. Uh, This is getting really interesting. These matchups are getting really intense and really tight. A couple of these contests, as I record this on Sunday morning, are neck and neck. I'm curious to see how these are going to turn out. Make sure you're voting. Make sure you're paying attention. Make sure you're getting involved in the discussion. This is all part of the fun. Um, let's get uh, let's get over to my guest now. Uh, I was really nervous to interview Don Dixon when I first booked this. I was filled with excitement, but that soon turned to anxiety when I realized that I was going to have to play it cool with the man who produced the first two albums by REM. I'd gotten the hookup from my friend and podcast guest, John Carroll, who tours with Dixon in Mary Chapin Carpenter's live band. When I reached out to Dixon, his assessment of the situation was, quote, any friend of John's is a friend of mine. When it came time for the interview, Don made me feel most at ease, and within seconds, it was like chatting with an old friend. Dixon is a tremendous storyteller, much like our mutual friend, John Carroll. And he has a lifetime of stories from the studio and the stage that could easily have filled three hours without breaking a sweat. Once we got rolling, we careened through Dixon's musical youth, his early band, The Arrogans, and learning the ropes of the studio and the record label game. Don shares his story of meeting a 15-year-old Mitch Easter, who was then forming a new band called The DBs with Chris Stamey and Peter Holsapple. Easter would eventually record the first REM EP, Chronic Town, and then worked with Dixon as co-producer on the records Murmur and Reckoning. Eventually, I confessed my love of R.E.M. to Don, and he was kind enough to let me nerd out on the -the behind-the-scenes stories and the making of those two records. He also regaled me with tales of time in the studio with Guadalcanal Diary, The Smithereens, Tommy Keene, Marshall Crenshaw, and many more. There is a brief discussion of Sinatra, the concept of 12-inch records, and Don's less-than-stellar view of vinyl as a sonic format. Dixon also shares his theory on the value and importance of having a great band playing behind a singer and how songs alone don't make for hit records. We also chat about how every new record now has to compete with all the greatness that has come before it. This is a terrific chat with a terrific talent and a great musical soul who has seen and done so much in the world of music. Enjoy this chat with me, and the legendary Don Dixon. You're in Ohio, right? Correct. And that is that where you grew up? Can't. No, no, I'm a Southern boy. I grew up in a little town called Lancaster, South Carolina, a little okay. mill town. Okay. And you went to, you wound up in... You wound up in Raleigh because of school? Well, not Raleigh. I was in Chapel Hill. I went to UNC. Excuse me, sir. I don't want to conflate. Okay. No, no. It's, it's uh, 
but they are different places. And um, sure. um, my dad actually had was a Yankee who went down to to NC State for forestry school in the 30s. Okay, wow. And that's why I ended up in the South, because he stayed in the South. Okay. And I grew up in a little town, a little mill town called Lancaster, South Carolina. But my mother had grown up in Raleigh, and he'd gone to NC State. And Mom had always been a huge UNC fan, so I was encouraged to go to the University of North Carolina. Uh, what did you go to school for? Well, I, I started as a BFA in drama, but I really didn't last very long. In that. Okay, as a failed uh, as a failed actor, I will ask you, uh, <laughs> why did you not why did you not last very long, sir? Well, I just realized that I wouldn't really give a shit about it, and uh, it was you had, and I, I didn't really like a, a lot of the people. I don't love actors, mm-hmm. so <laughs> I don't hate them. And no. I know a lot of actors, but uh, I just it just didn't seem like a good fit. I was so I moved to this department they had at the time, which was the original thing I was going to do there. Um called RTVMP, which is basically it was radio, television, and motion pictures. And uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was there for a long time. And it's sort of like the program. There's a Northwestern has a film program, and it's sort of like a, it was a film program, basically, but you yeah. learned a lot of stuff about. You got to work on technical stuff as well as, as the in front of the camera. So there's behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. Yeah. Uh, now, what what years would you have been doing that? I went to college in 1969, okay. and I dropped out in 1973. Okay. All right. Um, but yeah, I left so because my band had gotten signed to Vanguard, and the band was doing very well and popular. And I was an out-of-state student, so I figured, well, I'll drop out for a year, and at least if I come back for my last year i'll be a a in-state resident and won't cost as much right right that was an excuse uh and what was what was the name of that band arrogance yeah um i was reading a little bit about this you guys were like the uh the shit of the scene at the time it sounds like we were we were pretty important and and we helped sort of develop a lot of the diy stuff during the early 70s making your own records and and uh, that that angle, we, you know, we 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 went through several iterations, and we got signed. We made a lot of records, and not that many, but we made a few, and uh, we're together for about twelve to thirteen years. And um, you know, we were in Vanguard, we were on Warner Brothers, you know, we but we just never had a big hit. And imagine and that was, oh, did you say allegedly? <laughs> No, I said, imagine that. Imagine not having a hit, being signed to a label and not having a hit. How that can't possibly happen? Uh, it it and for lots of bands, <laughs> it happened for several records, and then they wound up being people that we think of as like Hall of Famers. Yeah, well, I I don't know about you, but I'm not big on the all of those accolades like that. And the current no, I, just, I'm not either. Yeah. I'm just thinking about it from the standpoint of like artists who were given a chance to sort of build a voice and then became incredible and became yeah. people that are that sort of are are sort of like commonly accepted as great at their 
craft. Well, and, and, it's, and it's true that that I grew up in an era when labels supported bands and allowed a band like Little Feet to make records for record after record after record that was selling 100,000, you know. Right. Of course, you know, back when I was started producing bands like R.E.M., you know, it was like, well, we just, we just, we don't want to do much. We just want to sell a hundred thousand, you know, and now if you sold a hundred thousand, you'd be number one. You know, it's, it's right. amazing how it's changed. Yeah. Uh, and then in, by the mid nineties, they would have signed so many bands that if you sold a hundred thousand copies, you'd get dropped. Oh, well, I mean, a, a lot of people did get dropped back in yeah. the old days for selling only, only a hundred thousand. Yeah. I mean, for only, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it, it's it's just amazing, actually. It's uh, it's really incredible how the tide of the sort of the economics of the industry changes so quickly, and then we see that as the way that it's always been, even though it's all very finite. Like, it's records. <laughs> nope, it's eight tracks. Nope, it's tapes. <laughs> nope, it's CDs. Nope, it's records again. Nope, it's this digital thing. Nope, it's records again, and it's like. It's never always been the same thing. Now I'm a, no. I'm a big proponent of artists should be paid more fairly by things like Spotify and Apple Music. But I also realize that like we can't just take <laughs> we can't all go it's always going to be like it was when we were 15, you know, what? which I think is kind of what we want, isn't it? Yeah, well, but you just can't put it back in the bottle. Right. People now expect to get stuff for free and they right. don't they don't sit around waiting for the release. It, uh, you know, it's not like it's not like it used to be when when it's, there was a a one medium that was holding it. You know that. It, or, oh, I, I mean, I I don't know. Just this in terms have, of marketing. Yeah, right. this might have been after your time, but I mean, I'm a guy who grew up in an age where I spent many a Monday night waiting in line in the cold until my local record store opened at midnight. So that I could buy the new REM record or the new Cure record, or because Tuesday was the release date back right. then. That's right. Yeah, it's now yeah. Friday. If you it is uh, so much <laughs> as we have releases in the way that we used to. Right, right. Uh, it's a little Drop. bit there, drops on Friday. It does kind of feel like somebody just sort of <laughs> let it slip, right? Like there's a. Yeah. Um, well, that's what they call it. They call it. So they do. Drop. They do. Um, uh, I'm I'm kind of curious. So as you get to you got to this scene, you sort of build this band, you're on these labels, um, and then you wind up playing with Mitch Easter, and that's essentially because you know how to do this. You know that's how you get invited. Oh, no, no, I, I never have really been in a band with Mitch. Mitch, oh, okay. um, Mitch was in a band when Arrogance first got together. The other yeah. three guys in Arrogance were from Winston Salem, North Carolina. Okay. And so we played there early on. It was Got it. One of the places besides Chapel Hill that we would play. And Mitch's band, Mitch is much younger than I am. He was in the ninth grade and he had a band called Sacred Irony that was a really good band. And we would play occasionally play with him. So I, I met him when he was still, I was 19 and he was 15. Wow. So, and then uh, Peter Holzapple and Chris Stamey were even younger, I guess Chris was, is probably Mitch's age. Peter's a little And um, uh, they went on to form the DBs and, and uh, Mitch, uh, Mitch and I worked together on things and were friends over the years. Yeah. 
And then he uh, he actually went to Northwestern for a little while before he came back and went to UNC. Okay. And then I helped him build Drive-In, which was his first studio that he built. And I used Drive-In a lot and recorded a lot of bands there for him. Or not for him, but recorded a lot of bands there because it was a great little place. And then uh, when he asked me to help with that R.E.M. record, because he had already recorded them at Drive-In a few times, he did a uh, that first EP called Chronic Town. Yeah. And then we went into Reflection, a bigger studio that he had worked with me in. I mean, you know, we we played together, but we were never in a band together. Okay, I I then I think I misread something. I'm sorry about that, Don. Oh no no. Um, but uh, I I mean I just think it's it's really interesting that like so you clearly were doing some recording and were kind of acting as sort of a makeshift producer, um, before Mitch came into the picture. Then oh yeah no no I started. Okay. I was like, because I was so much older, I had a, a real big head start. I mean, by the time I'd already recorded in a lot of different countries and a lot of the major cities and a lot of great fancy studios and stuff. Oh, by, wow. Okay. By 1975. Okay. So Were you largely doing 20, a lot of the arrogant stuff yourself? Uh, we did some of it ourselves down in Charlotte, and then then we then when we got signed to Vanguard, they brought in a guy named John Anthony to produce. Was an English guy who had just had a big hit with uh, How Long for that band Ace, which oh, had yeah. Paul Carrick's band. So John Anthony produced that first, or produced actually the only album that came out on Vanguard. Okay, then. Um, but but yeah, I mean you know I'd been I I'd been learning the studio biz um, at Reflection in Charlotte and producing stuff down there since 1972 actually, and oh, I wow. did my first sessions as a sideman starting when I was 15 in 1966. Oh wow! So that was before you even had a band. Well, I had a this really great high school band that was played standards, and we played a lot of beauty pageants. We we'd read, so we got got we had, and we had tuxedos. We played played a lot of country clubs and things yeah. like that. That must and, have been an amazing experience in the mid '60s, being a kid playing those kind of events. It, it it was, and the great thing about the beauty pageants was, you know, I met all the Miss South Carolinas and a few Miss Americas, and, and yeah. You know, it doesn't hurt, does it? It was well, it was fun. It was just yeah. you know, you're just a kid. Different, exactly. You're just a kid. Yeah, uh, a kid who so, owned a tuxedo. So a kid who owned a tuxedo. You didn't rent. No, you, no, you no. Using it too often. Uh, so yeah, you're no, you're did. you're rolling along in the late seventies, and you're where? So at this point, Arrogance have been a band for nearly a decade. By '83, I mean, you know, we actually broke up around '82. So we got we we made our first record in January of 1970. We got together in the fall of '69, and we're played you know, like we're officially that was sort of like my, my official combo through a like '81, '82. Okay, okay. And then at that point, then you slid more into the production thing for a while. Well, no, I was always producing. I mean, I, I, I was always, you know, producing my buddies, you know, for gotcha, you know, that just as a 
uh, you know, production has always only been a one of my ways of trying to make a living. It's uh, <laughs> songwriting, have... songwriting, playing, you know, performing live, uh huh, um, and making records. Those are the sort of the three basic. Yeah. Uh, now you just need a couple of sync licenses, and you're all set. Well, I've had some of those. We've had some good ones. You know, I wrote a song for that movie, Heather's. Do you remember Heather's? Of course I remember Heather's. I'm yeah, I wrote that song, Teenage Suicide, Don't Do It. For the, you, Don, I completely forgot that that was you. Oh, my God. That's me and, and, and Mitch, my wife, Marty Jones, and Mitch's uh, wife at the time uh, created the band Big Fun to record Teenage Suicide. They brought me out to to – sort of be music director for the film and I'll watch the movie and it was pretty much done at that point. And they already had the, uh, I believe it was, it's one of the Newman's younger Newman guys, first soundtracks. I can't remember which one it is. You can look it up, but, um, and it was pretty good. It was sort of this simple synthy kind of soundtrack. And there's so much dialogue and there's so much action. And they, they, cause they were thinking, well, we'll just put a lot of replacement songs in here and stuff, you know, we'll do, fill it up with. And I said, you don't want to do that. You don't want to put all that crap in there. All you really need is this song, teenage suicide. Don't do it because it's super important. Key thing. Cause you right. know, Christian later blows up the radio when it's on and all that stuff. So, so I created that song for it. Anyway, you can find it. It's it's oh, it's around. I, I don't I I'm <laughs> singing it in my head. I remember I had that goddamn soundtrack done. I <laughs> well so for some, for some reason I'm not on the soundtrack. Maybe so that's why I don't license. connect you with the song. I yeah, the soundtrack not- is not does not include Teenage Suicide, don't do it. And Sony had rights to that song, so it may they may have had a, uh, it may have been some sort of publishing issue that they didn't want to do it. Wow, that's Unit I'm so control. I'm so glad I made a joke about a sync license. So I got to hear that story. <laughs> that's fantastic. All right, I I have to make a full confession, and I've gone 25 minutes without doing it. Um, I I want to talk to you, and I'm going to try to to not fanboy out too much, but I would love to talk to you about the process of making those first two REM records. This is a band that is incredibly important to me. And I, I have a couple bands in my life. One of them is called Harbor Coat, Don. Um, so this will give you an idea of kind of the importance of this band in my life. Okay, so your uh, band was called Harbor My band, I still have a band called Harbor Coat. I love it. Thank I love you. that song. I love that song too. And uh, we are we actually, actually, we did a year ago, for a Christmas thing, I did a cover of a song by Fountains of Wayne called Valley Winter Song with Harbor Coat. Okay. And somehow or another, Chris Collingwood from Fountains of Wayne heard this and said, here is this surprisingly lovely cover song from an R.E.M. tribute band. Now, we are in no way an R.E.M. tribute band. It's all original music that I have written. And then, well, then- he very sweetly went back and said, I have just been corrected. <laughs> It's just an RB tribute because they named their band after something. Correct. So anyway, uh that is my intro to ask you about I mean that that must have changed your life in some small ways as well with the success of those two records. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, Mitch and I were already friends. We were already working on a lot of stuff. Mitch had um 
called me up to to talk to me about approaches to take because they were they were kind of different and and he was working on um um chronic talent at the time so uh, i think i came in and and messed around and did maybe even did a mix like on wolves lower and yeah. uh, tried we were trying to figure out how to to have it feel like it had a low end in this way because of the way Mike Mills played, he didn't really have a lot of low end in his bass part. So you had to, had to create this sort of sense of low end from somewhere. So, so it was really from the bass drum. So, so it's all about trying to figure that out. And and if you listen to murmur, murmur sounds more like a, a record that was recorded at high studios in Memphis or something than it does a new wave record. You know, it's a very drum heavy, almost disco drums, um, because you have to have that drive from someplace. And Bill's uh, a really, he's a funkier drummer than he, you realize. And like, listen a, to his hi-hat stuff. Exactly. He's, he's, a, he's a great musician. He's a badass yes. drummer. I mean, he's he plays piano on Perfect Circle, for example. He wrote, I think he wrote that part, the piano. Uh, I, I mean, I, those guys oh. are all really good songwriters. Yeah. In their own right. Yeah, um, yeah, and brilliant that they that they were smart enough early on to just go, nope, it's Barry Bucknell's type. I think that that's a something every band should always do. So I, mm-hmm. I would. I was yeah, I, I'm in a band. That doesn't, I'm in right two band. bands that don't make any money, and and that's <laughs> that's the split. Here's your here's your here's your twenty percent of Bupkis. There you go. Yeah, it's it's sort of like you know Springsteen still basically splits everything this band when they play so yeah i think it's fantastic uh so i don't think it splits his publishing but i don't <laughs> you don't don you don't <laughs> i don't think i think he's probably got that five you don't you don't think when he sold that 800 million dollar deal you don't you don't think little steven got a cut steven might have gotten it he might have gotten a nice christmas present probably got a nice christmas <laughs> present. um was uh, I mean, I've heard stories that those two records were made fairly quickly. That they really, were really I mean, yeah. they're, they're both about three week records, which isn't horribly quickly for, um, for then for uh, you know fairly important indie records, you know, because because they were on a real there was a real label and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, but they were. Uh, we may not have spent quite, we may have only spent like 19 days on reckoning, but uh, it was a, it was about three weeks for, for both of them, which was sort of a normal amount of time. And that's, and that's uh, mixing and everything, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's walking out the door. I mean, cause I made a lot of records. First Smithereens album was five days. You made that record in five days, including all the mixes. Holy every shit. All those guest people dragging them through. Oh my God! Made a Guadalcanal Diary record in five days—a really great one. Which one? The first one I made, which would have been the first one after Watusi Rodeo, "Walking in the Shadow of the Big Man." Oh, guess what it was called? Uh, I really, really love that record. I also did you do two by four as well? Oh yeah, I, lo- I yeah. love two by four. Is my favorite record of theirs. Uh, it's my favorite record of theirs as well. I uh, I have a couple dear friends, and we go to a. Uh, we go to a family cabin that we have and we bring a turntable and records with us every time. And everybody brings a different box of records. Perfect. And, and 
almost invariably someone will bring a copy of two by four and it always gets played. Well, it's a, it's a great record. And great uh, record. we did that one in Charlotte. Most of my records with them were, were done in Atlanta, but um, that one was in Charlotte. Uh, Same place what? we did Murmur and Reckoning. Those were, those were both in Charlotte as well? Yeah, they were both a place called Reflection. Really nice okay. multi-purpose studio. Um, so I have to believe that, I mean, that's, that's a pretty great string of what I would think of as sort of college rock records. I mean, the other, the other note that I had here was, I would love to talk to you about working with Tommy Keene. I mean, this sure. Is guy, this Thanks. is a guy who I, first of all, what a loss. Um, yeah. and just by all accounts, a prince of a human being and a, just an amazing songwriter. What well, a songwriter. When I was working with Tommy, he I wouldn't have called him a prince. He became more prince-like as he later, and, and we stayed in touch, and we stayed friendly and actually got to be better friends after. But, but I didn't really know him when I made those first recordings with him, and uh, I didn't know. And, and T-Bone, they, they sort of brought T-Bone in. Okay. Not not Tommy, the record company. Right, right. Which was fine. And T Bone and I actually get along great and, and got along really well. But um Tom I mean, you know, it's kind of a blur because it was only a few days okay. and um, it's probably a week, maybe because we didn't cut a whole album. Um and and then we it kind of he signed before the record ever came out or anything it was it was for a small label called Dolphin, which was owned by Barry Bergman at the record bar. Okay, that's who owned that label, and it was a kind of a new label. And this guy named Josh Greer was running it, and uh, you know we 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 cut all these songs, and then he ended up kind of Tommy ended up just signing with Geffen just Geffen just bought out his contract. So the record as we were intending it to be never really came out songs sort of dribbed and drabbed out over the years. Got it. Um, uh, is that a common thing in your experience? No, that's never really happened to me that many times, okay. a couple of times, but nothing. Okay. I mean, typically what happens is, It'll be like with Smithereens, which I made that record for Enigma, and then Capital just kind of snatched him up, and then we went over and just started making records for Capital. It's not like the record didn't come out. How many records did you do with them? Smithereens, I, I made, uh, especially for you, the first album. Uh, the second album, Green Thoughts, which is on Capital. The, uh, then... Ed Stacey made a few records and had all the hits, made all the money. And then uh, it's fine. I love Ed. And I love this voice. But we always stayed close. And then I made, I think the next thing I did was was Pat's solo record. Um, he signed with Walter Yetnikoff, started a little label, and he signed a solo deal with Yetnikoff. And so we made a really very cool solo record, if you've never heard it. If I don't think I know that. Uh, it's called Sights and Sounds or something. I don't know, but it's the only Pat Denizio solo album. 
And but I mean, we have like Sonny Curtis, not Sonny Curtis, Sonny, uh, I guess, sort of a, a saxophone player, uh, Tony Thunder Williams, uh, the, the bass player from uh, British guy, Jacques, bass player from the Stranglers. Oh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, it, it and it was fun. It was great. And it's a cool record. And then I made uh, an, their first album for RCA, maybe their only album for RCA, uh, which is really, really interesting, great record, which we did at the Magic Shop in New York. And then, uh, and then I made another record that I tracked at Mitch's studio, Fidelatorium, uh, called 2011. That's also a really great record. So I think 2011 is going to come back out. That's uh, awesome. But it was called when we were making it. We, Pat and I wanted it to be called the Savage Young Smithereens, but they chose not to use that title <laughs> anyway. And we're talking about you know they're doing shows with Robin from the Jim Blossoms. I did a Jim the last Jim Blossoms record. Yeah. And uh, and Marshall Crenshaw are both now singing with the Smithereens. So. We're actually talking about making an album with those two guys. They're actually writing songs right now with the band. That is super cool. I would love for that to become a thing. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see. Uh, what a great way to sort of pay tribute to Pat's legacy. Yeah. Well, there's only one Pat, man. Pat is. Yeah. Another. Um. That is a that is a band that I am dearly, dearly sorry I never got to see. Yeah, well, somehow just never happened. With, you can see with Marshall and Robin now, but it's not. Um, no, uh, but I would also just go see a Marshall Crenshaw show. Uh, you yeah, know? of course you um, You're, in, you're uh, already in Michigan. I was going to say fellow Michigander. Uh, um, so one of the things that seems like it's really great is that you can scratch a bunch of different itches with these various uh income streams that you've got set up for yourself mr dixon so you you can play producer you can be a side man you can be a songwriter and and a and a you know and do do you just do you still do film work and that kind of thing as well well i mean i never have done that much i made okay. one i guess i'm I, I mean i guess i meant the the like being like a music director for something like Heather's. Or, oh, I, you know, if somebody calls me up, you know, I, I, you know, I did one, I just haven't done that much. I, I did the sound, a soundtrack for a 30 minute cartoon for this French company, you know, once and stuff like that. So, you know, I don't do as much of that as like John does, for example, John gotcha. does a lot of that. Soundtrack. John does do a lot of that. Uh, when I saw John last summer, he was working on a uh, um, series of songs for a children's book. Yeah, that he was yeah, working on it was really yeah. cool, and uh, and of course, um, John somehow can bring a children's book to life with a piano. I don't know how you do that. Oh, you totally, son of a bitch. Well, now do you have more? I don't want to get us off REM. You've got to have some more questions. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I guess, I guess my big question is, uh, that is that is this very young band. That to me, I'm every time I read about it or 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 hear about it, I'm always amazed that they were so they had their shit together so early. As somebody who was in a band in his early twenties, it seemed like they had their shit together. Is that an accurate assessment? Do you think? Yeah, I think it's a very accurate assessment. They were a real band from you know they, and the other interesting thing about them that Mitch and I both commented on at the time, you know, was how their four 
they had these four very distinct personalities the way we had been taught the Beatles had these four distinct personalities, you know, through the cartoons and yes. movies. And they really also had this very clear, distinct personality, which, you know, when, when you look at the DNA of a, of a band and, and what happens, how the songs become what they become, it, it isn't one guy ever, and when it is, it's not. It's not a great band. It's it might be no. great records. It might be great. Uh, almost every great band has known each other since they were junior high, and uh, and they have influenced each other without even understanding it or knowing why. Uh, and and REM is not maybe. I mean, you, you got to think about a lot of things. I'll make one more Beatle reference here. You know, there was never a 30-year-old Beatle. So it's like, you right. know, those guys were very young when, when they were pulling it together. And uh, I think Mike and, and Bill Berry knew each other first. So Mike and Bill Berry knew each other. And then Michael and, and Peter got together because Peter worked in a record store. I think. So, um you, you don't. I don't know the exact antecedents. We we were involved because their original manager uh, Jefferson. Uh, what's Jefferson's last name? Holt. Yeah, right. Jefferson, I was going to say Davis. <laughs> I don't think um, that's it. <laughs> yeah, Jefferson he, Holt. He managed a different organization that didn't go quite as well. Oh yeah, Jeff. Uh, Jefferson Davis, correct. Jefferson Davis had more trouble. Uh, anyway, Holt, you know, was a UNC guy. He's he's from Greensboro, and, and he had gone to college, and he knew Mitch, and was a music fan. So he he dragged the his band that he felt like he discovered up to to Mitch's to record. So that's how we got involved. Okay. Um, Mitch involved me. Um. And so basically Mitch Mitch brought you in kind of uh sort of basically to to kind of manage things since it was kind of a bigger deal than he was used to. Well yeah, I mean, he just experience. I mean he, he he had yeah, I'd had more experience at the time than than he did right. and we you know, we'd done some recording together. He I'd actually gotten him to come down and, and sort of like assist an engineer on some things at the reflection. But he I don't know why he asked me to do it, but he, but he, you know, other than he just felt like it might be better. So I was happy to do it because I loved him. You know, I, I didn't know him, but I loved the stuff he was playing me. And um, so you were on board before you ever went in the studio. Oh yeah. No, no, no. I mean, you know, yeah. we don't, neither of us believe in a lot of pre-production. So it's not like we sat around and. Right worked anything out because why would you do that they they need the fucking songs yeah, yeah. i i think that's most of I editing, wonder, what i was going to say a lot of what i would bring I, I i brought intros to this thing as much as anything else it's like i would create some sort of odd intro or edit something after the fact you know that made it got it together and be more interesting and and you know mitch and i would just add little things so it would not just seem like a demo. You know? Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, it's a fairly spare, especially Murmur's a fairly spare record. Oh. 
they're, and they're there's cool. some some kind of ghostly pianos and weird noise makey things and some mm-hmm. wind chimes that get used once or twice. Well, um, actually, yeah, there's no actual wind chimes, but there's all kinds of odd bangings of things yeah. from water and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, um, and then the pool slow down pool balls on We Walk, which you know a lot of people know about that one. So yes, um, which was tell that. Why don't you tell that story for folks who don't know? Well, it's just well, Mitch and I both felt like We Walk was just too happy sounding. It was just like this is just too fucking happy. So I was working. I don't know. I was mixing it. I was doing something and nobody else was around. Nobody was paying attention. Uh, I, I had Michael's vocal set up in this sort of landing, like a half a flight of steps down. And then the other flight of the steps went to the pool room. So uh, I noticed they were down there. A couple of them were down there shooting pool. So I just snuck Michael's mic down to the, door opening of the door and then i sped the tape recorders up as fast as they would go so um so i i went we recorded at 15 because i like the bass better at 15 so i turned it up to 30 and then we also had a this big transformer thing that would change the speed again so i cranked that thing up made it go even more than 30 so it's probably going about 40 depths or something and just recorded exactly them playing pool and talking wherever it was uh, for what the 45 seconds it would have been. It wouldn't have been that long. you know. Uh, and then I told myself, okay, so I'm just going to run this through a bunch of reverb in the plate and whatever happened happens. I don't get to edit. I don't get to change anything. Whatever noises there are will be the noises that I'll use. And then I I did a mix that had that stuff in it, which just makes it a little spookier because it takes some of the happiness away, which is all it does. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of brilliant stuff like that on that record. Um, you mentioned the tub of water. Well, we, it was like more like metal bowls and things. We we made a table, and I can't rem- even remember where that was from. Mirror Reckoning. Uh, but there are some, um, you know, just a table with lots of bowls and some mallets and things, and they would just bang on that, and we occasionally mix those sounds in. Um, the and, and you know, a lot of things like it, I think it is perfect circle. Maybe it's actually Mike Mills and. Um, Bill Berry playing pianos, but they're playing two different pianos at the same time. We have had like an upright tack piano and then a really nice Yamaha C3 or whatever it was. And I just pushed them real close together and put one mic between the two pianos. So that's actually them playing at the same time. Wow. Uh, and playing the same, exactly the same part, but on two different pianos to the drums that had already been cut. So, and that's they did that for the whole track. Yeah. Wow. That's, that, that's the basic. That's the basic part of that song. And then you know Peter does his classic arpeggiated stuff. Yeah. Uh, which is arguably 
Um, I am an arpeggiator, but I'm not an arpeggiator with that level of precision every time. That's the nobody difference. is. I mean, it's like Mitch and I both. Any chance we have to to talk about how amazing the stuff that that Peter does is, um, Don, I. I started playing guitar when I was, I started late. I didn't start till I was 21 and I had failed a bunch of times previously. And finally I learned to play and I never wanted to shred. Never wanted, never wanted to shred. Never thought that like, I think Hendrix is great. I think Prince is amazing. I didn't want to do those things. It's not what I wanted to do. And people were like, what do you want to do then? And I was like, I want to be in a band with Johnny Marr and Peter Buck. And if I can't be in a band with those dudes, I want to be able to play a little bit like those dudes so I can do that. The last time I was on stage with with any of with REM was with Johnny Marr. Oh, no shit. It was me and Mitch and Johnny, and it was their last tour, and they didn't know it was going to be their last tour. So it must what, 2008. And uh Johnny was playing with this band called Modest Mouse that was yeah. on tour. And so we all came out and played something. I don't even remember what it was, but we're all just oh my God. playing guitars. Uh, that's and amazing. Nobody's shredding. Nope. <laughs> no, uh, I'm shedding tears because those <laughs> guitar players are on stage at the same time. But no, I mean, yeah, that was my thing, Don. I was like, they were like, what? And I was like, I just want to, I want to write songs like Billy Bragg. And then I just want to play guitar kind of like those two dudes. And that's all I've been half-assing my way to for the last thirty years. Oh, that's pretty good. I mean, that that's it's it's good to set yourself up to to write the songs that have as much uh, at stake in them as Billy Bragg's do. Boy, I hope some of my songs have that much at stake. I think that guy, I think that guy's a real force of a human being. He's yeah, a real. He's I don't a, know him. A, I've never met him, but uh, uh, I've met him a couple times, very much in passing, in a customer. Uh, vendor relationship, um, <laughs> but very nice man. Um, really puts his money where his mouth is, and um, I I have a lot of respect for him. Do you know Otis Gibbs? I know the name. He, he's sort of the American Billy Bragg, I think. Okay. He's like a wobbly. Do you know? Remember what the I, wobbly? I know the, the wobbly. Yeah. yeah, Otis Gibbs. Yeah, I gotta look this up. Uh, I know that uh, the other one that I know that people say is the new Billy Bragg is uh, a guy named Frank Turner. Oh, yeah. Frank. Yeah. Frank. Yeah. Yeah. What's but that? I think Frank is also, isn't he Irish or something? Is he Irish? I don't know. I was thinking he was. Maybe I'm oh, kidding. Very, he very much could be. Uh, he's a good songwriter. Yeah. No, no. Uh, I, uh, yeah. I think I saw uh, him on Mountain Stage or something one time. Maybe yeah. did one. Do you, do you do those or get over there often? I used to do them all the time. I haven't I haven't been on one in a, since about 2014 or 15. Okay. How long how long have you been on the road with Mary Chapin? I've just started playing with her regularly starting in 2010. Okay. I like how 15 years ago is regularly as recent. Well, <laughs> completely. I mean, because I've known her since before she had a record deal. So Oh, no kidding. Uh, yeah, we she had just signed, I think, her publishing deal. It was in like not eighty-five, maybe eighty-six. And my wife Marty Jones and I were doing a thing in DC, and she was on one of the panels with us. And so we met her there and, and became uh, 
comrades right away. Yeah. Marty and I getting a song on their records. I played on a bunch of the records. Not well, not a bunch, but a few of them. Yeah. Most notably, I think I I played on um, Stones in the Road. She put she she typically used her band, but and that one she put a, a group together for half the record. That was me and um, Ben Montinch and um, uh, Arnoff. Uh, oh, Kenny, Kenny Arnoff, yeah. And 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 it's a really cool record. And and we do like six of the songs, and her band does other six. So. It's an interesting way to make a record. Yeah, you know, it, that's kind of the way. I don't know whether you know who who uh, Bill Simzik is. No. Uh, Super famous producer who's, yeah. um, you know, it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of records. But when he was the, um, I mean, because he did all the huge Eagle records, you know, all those okay. Walsh records when he was on ABC, he was a staff guy at ABC. This is my point about about splitting a record. Yeah. And he got assigned to do B.B. King's new record. And, and he was going... He said, "Well, I don't, I don't do BB King. He, he, he doesn't. His band sucks." And but so he sat down with BB and he said, "BB, I can make a hit record for you. We can have a hit, but you have to let me put a band together for six of the songs. Other six songs, you can do anything you want. You can use anybody you want. I don't care. But I've got to have six songs. So that's where the thrill is gone came from. Stephen Bishop, Pete." put a real studio band together for him. Wow. That's, that's how that happened. Uh, and that's not saying that that's what Mary Chapin needed to do. <laughs> got you. I just said it, it is, there, there are precedents. Well, there's something to the, uh, I hesitate to use the word assembly line, but I am a Michigan boy. Um, <laughs> uh, um, you know, I look at, I look at the Motown thing. Yeah. And I look at that situation and I look at what a machine it was. Have you ever, have you ever taken that tour down at the museum? I've never taken the tour. I've, I've gone to Hitsville, but I've never actually taken. The tour. Um, so if you've been in the building, you've, you've been in the building cause there's about four rooms in the building. There ain't right. much to it. Yeah. Okay. But um, my favorite part of the tour that they give you is they take you down into the, the, the basement, the garage, which is the studio. Right. And there's a little control room that's there. And at the control room, they tell you the hot dog story. Have you heard the hot dog story? Okay. So the hot dog story is this. What they would do is every Monday, all the songwriters and performers would come and they would pitch their song and they would play it. Usually just a piano and a vocal. Sure. And everybody would stand around and they would all vote for their favorite one. And they would figure out what the favorite one was. And then Barry Gordy would go around the room and he'd go, you have 75 cents left in your pocket. You can buy my record or a hot dog. And if more people said hot dog than record, Motown didn't put it out. Wow. Wow. Yep. Talk about a tough room. That that would be a tough room. Yeah. And so... Well, they put out a lot of great records. <laughs> so they must they have... Should. They must have beat the hot dog often i either that or people lied <laughs> <laughs> i won't keep my job yeah, yeah. But, it's, but it is that idea and then you look at it and you go yep 
And whoever's playing that piano probably ain't playing it on the recording. You know? And so, you know, if if that was a temptation song, then those guys did the vocal arrangement and everything else was the oh, Funk true. Brothers. Everything else. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they didn't even do that much of the vocal arrangement. You know, they they no. they, every, they there were a lot of smart people involved in making those records. I, I mean, I'm my brain goes way back with with Barry to when he had this guy named Marv Johnson that most people don't remember that he was making records for. And I think Marv's records were coming out on Brunswick or something. Yeah, but this is pre, and Barry was writing the songs and you know doing doing his Barry Gordy thing. Yeah. Marv and Marv was an incredible singer. I loved him. And was he Detroit based as well? He must have been. I mean, I never thought about where he was from. I've never. Uh, I remember being. I remember being in my early to mid twenties, and we took a. There's a great museum in the Detroit area called the Henry Ford, and they had a Motown exhibit, and they had this map up, and it was a map of the neighborhoods of Detroit. Wow! And it showed you where all these people grew up. And it was like looking at this list of a who's who of American soul music, and they all grew up in like a sixteen square block area. Down there. Oh well, I mean, I mean that's the whole thing when you think about um, the scenes are typically created like a college scene is created by one guy who has the balls to keep a club open where right. people have a place to play. Yeah, and without that club, none of those bands ever get heard of outside right. of there. And, and without Jefferson, R.E.M. never gets heard of because right. he brought him up to make records. That's right. And without Barry, you don't get no, you everything don't get. out of Detroit. You may not even get amazing people like Aretha, who doesn't even sign to Motown. Well, yeah, it's, it's hard to know about Aretha, though, because she, she was in that whole different orbit. I mean, well, people don't know how important her dad was, you know, in right. the whole civil rights thing and, and just in That's the black communities. And, you know, he was a, you know, he was a, she, people forget she had, they tried to have that career on Columbia before she signed to Atlantic, which is very much, it's it's not their boring records. And um, they really are. And and they're just because they're trying to make her into Diana Washington or somebody. Exactly. Acceptable acceptable sort of they're trying to they're 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 trying to gentrify her yeah exactly um, so um, it, it, it's 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 great though that you know we we have been alive during a time when you could have these huge independent records companies like motown was an independent record company forever just like a&m was until yes. really the late 60s when they both kind of sold out to as the conglomerates began to yeah. suck everything up. And even into even well into the eighties and when you're producing records for bands on major labels, I mean I mean Guadalcanal Diary and the Smithereens and you know Marshall Crenshaw, those those bands are all on fairly large labels or subsidiaries well, of major labels. No, I mean, they I were mean all Smithereens on, are on Sire, right? No, Smithereens are on Capital. No shit. Okay. Yeah. Smithereens on Capital. They went to RCA. And then, uh, you know, the uh, Guadalcanal Diary was on Electra. Okay. Um, who was the other band? Uh, Marshall was on Warner Brothers. Okay. Yeah. I mean, these are all big labels. Bigger than those labels. You know, I mean, I mean, I look at it, I look at it and go, 
nope, no bands, no rock bands are getting on a, a quote unquote label now. Nobody's signing a rock band. It's it's different. It is. I, I talked to a guy recently who said he thought it was time for it to go back underground again. I don't know if that's him being romantic, but you know, maybe it needs to be not the ubiquitous focal point of musical culture for a while. Yeah, I mean, the the thing I think about now is that you mentioned Jimi Hendrix recently, and um, it's just like everybody is competing with so with everything that's ever existed, and it's all still out there pretty loud. And then there's hundreds of thousands of new things, right? trying to get your attention so it, it's just a, an awful lot and and um there's no filters at all anymore in terms of what no people- and i looked at like i saw you know like they'll put up the thing at the end of the year where billboard will tell you here are the 20 best-selling vinyl releases of 2023 and i'm sure you know what i'm going to say 19 of the 20 are all 20 years or older yeah ex- exactly it's all fleetwood mac and thriller and you know let it be and like it's great stuff but it's great stuff that's been around for 40 or 50 years yeah yeah and and i don't know i don't, I don't think records sound very good so i'm gonna i'll go on record as saying i think records are, are bad and they needed to go away and they had it their fine life while they had it they had a, a pretty good run but lps weren't around any longer than cds i mean no I mean, I mean, they technically came out in '49, but you didn't really start seeing LPs didn't really take over until the, till the mid '50s, and uh, about the same time the '45. Yeah. So hit hit the '45. Do the you market. know the story of the record, the of the album that kind of makes the 12 inch, 33 RPM, kind of the the the, the format du jour. It's no. uh. It's um, In the Wee Small Hours of the Morning by Frank Sinatra. Oh, wow. Now, why is that? The reason that he wanted to do it was because he wanted to make what he saw as a legitimate-sounding record. This is a story I heard. And legitimate-sounding music at that time was classical music, and classical music came out on 12-inch LPs. And he said, don't put this out on two 10-inches. It'll make it look like a pop record. I want this to look like a serious record. Okay. So what what year was that? 53? I think it's 54 or 55, Don. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, um, any earlier than that, that you didn't have enough players out there that could play. Right, right. Um, and that really is the point at which it kind of veers that way. Um, I mean, it's not the only thing that does it, but it is kind of the, the – it's the first big release that is successful. It's a pop record on, quote-unquote, the classical format. Um, it's also – a brilliant record. It doesn't hurt that it's absolutely genius. Yeah. Well, I think is that his first Nelson Riddle one, or is that? Uh, it's the second or, one. It's um, um, is it Swing Easy? That's right before that. It's they they do two of he did two of them right together, and it was really a matter of which one do you want to put out first. And they're basically done at the same time. But yeah, it's his first. That's the first real collaboration with Nelson Riddle at that point. Yeah. Um, I love his stuff with Gordon Jenkins. I'm a big Gordon Jenkins fan, so. I I feel like so much of ink has been spilled about Frank Sinatra, and he's still underrated. 
<laughs> I had a conversation with somebody the other day and I was like, I talked to somebody recently and they were like, yeah, he's he's good. And I'm like, no, try to sing My Funny Valentine and make it sound like a conversation. First of all, it's a really hard song to sing. Right. Second, try to sound as effortless as Blue Eyes when you do it. And when you do that, then you come talk to me. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, I, I never, I was skeptical of him until I saw some footage of him running a session one time, and I was pretty impressed by the way he ran the session. And I and bet he was completely in charge. Yeah, and that yeah, how hard he worked on it. You know, his, his yeah. own it was he wasn't just yelling at people. He was working on his own thing. He was actually very um, inspirational in terms of he he was not mean to anybody he was mainly concerned about getting it right and that's what it's about mm -hmm. you know it's i think ego gets in the way certainly you've been in the producer's right. chair enough to know that like it at the end of the day it's not your record right no uh, but it is my responsibility to to not you know i'm not just there as a yes man it's my responsibility oh, to tell the truth and to to help people understand things they might not be seeing. The problem with being an artist is that you're staring at yourself. It's like staring at yourself in the mirror for hours and hours and hours. And and basically, you all you start seeing are the things you hate. And you don't see the things that are good anymore. Right. You're looking at yourself. So uh, it, it's to, I try to get rid of as much of that as I can um, to try to eliminate, help, help people quit staring at themselves so hard and look at, look at the big picture of what things, what's going on. That's a hard thing to do both to teach it and to do it. <laughs> you can't, you, you can't, there and then there's a lot about being a musician you can't teach. So, so you have to try to 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 make sure you're always just enforcing the best things about what's going on and mitigating things that might not be so great. But the other thing is that it's very subjective. All this stuff is so subjective, and uh, that's what makes the world go around, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's what well, isn't that also what makes art so valuable? is that we can all see it from a different perspective. We can have our own unique viewpoint on it and bring our own experience to it. You know, I don't pretend that I've done anything uh, incredibly foundational in terms of my work, but when I put something out, I also realize that when I share a record with other people, it ceases to be my record anymore. Right. The minute, it, the minute that you let other people hear things, you uh, have... It does belong. It's not yours. So, uh, and that's that's the thing about if you want to sort of call any of this shit that I do art, I, I, which I don't. I don't believe it. art with a silent f. Okay, um, fair enough. Anyway, it, it, but it's you know any it, the job of the artist is really just to do the thing and and try not to judge it yourself even. Just, you know, just put it out there. It's it's there. Move on. Move there on. That, uh, there's, I think that that is a thing that is 
really become easier for me to do as I get older. I'm much less precious about the stuff that I create because I see it more as work and I appreciate the work as maybe the most valuable part of it, not the end result. Like the doing well, it is the reason to do it. Yeah. I, from from your point of view, it's true. The end result is the only thing that matters to anybody else. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, all what that I'm work saying doesn't is matter that from, to them. But I think that I think that largely that's where that's where truth comes from, whether you want to call that art or not. I think that there is a uh I think there is a, a truth to that that has to meet up with talent and work. Like we were talking about Frank and the way and his expectations of himself and what that means for other people. You right. can't you can't half ass a record and go, I'm an artist. Like right. You, right. You, can. No, you can, but not a lot right. of people are gonna buy in. Um, I you know, we you and I both know that that many of the many great hit records are horrible songs. Oh God. So yeah. It's like the So, but they're great records. And then there are a lot of really great songs that will never be a good record because they're, that's not what they are. They're, you know, they're these songs that live. I mean, you, you can't talk about what a great hit, you know, John Prine made, you know, but, right. but you could talk about the songs. Um, even even a, a guy I work with a lot, like James McMurtry, you know, you're you're looking more at songs than you are hit records. It's not I'm not gonna make a wooly bully with James McMurtry. No, and and that guy is a tremendous storyteller. I'm very much uh, I'm a fan of his work. I'm very much in awe of his economy the way that he can pack so much information into three and a half minutes. It's I'm true. always impressed. It's true. And, and he works really hard at it. I bet he, he does works really hard at writing. Uh, and one can only imagine the great songs that never get the light of day. I don't know. He, he He's, I think I can't think of many things. I, I haven't. It's not like I hear everything he he's working on, but he. I don't think he's got a whole bunch of stuff that in of at least someplace. Uh, I think I think that he has to, but by the nature of the way he works, has to be kind of selective yeah. about about an idea and not give up on it. He just takes a long time okay. to, to, for something to ferment. He's, uh, I would imagine one gets to that economy through a great deal of editing and rewriting. Yeah. And, and then just think, you know, a lot, a lot of thinking and practicing. He's also really great live and he plays a lot. So. He does play a lot. He's a terrific performer. And um, maybe of every performer I've ever seen live, the best guitar tone I've ever heard. He, you know, th that's why I made that one record with him is, is he, his record Candyland had just came out, had just come out and I'd been playing all these shows with him and I loved the way he played guitar and he uses these weird drop tunings and all this stuff. And none of that was on that record. It's like, it was all just Mellencamp's guys, you know, playing and, and, and it, and it was just with him singing, which was fine. But, you know, 
it was the combination to me of, of his singing and his playing. So when we did when we did the Voyage of the Body album, it started with just a drummer in front of him and him with his acoustic guitar looking at the drummer and he would go through we'd record the songs that way and then then once we got something that we liked then i would figure out what he had done and create a bass part around what he had played rather than making him think about what he was going to do gotcha and so that's the sort of attack the approach of that which I think got allowed allowed us to use his sounds. That's an awesome way to approach that, so that he doesn't have to try to do both of those things at once. And was that no. largely is that largely a situation where you're tracking most of that live in a room with all those players? No, no, nobody was playing. It was just the two of them. Okay. We, everything started with just a drummer and and. Oh, so you didn't Dang. go back and re-record? You just would record a bass part to whatever was already there. Yes, and, uh, got it. Understood. Mm -hmm. And I would just figure out we and we added a lot of things. I mean, it's a lot of people on that record, um, but that they all every song started that way. That's that's great. Uh, so there's no right way to do something. There, there's no. no wrong way to do something. No. Um, and one of the things that's great about being young and being in a spot where you can you know, record a bunch of dudes playing pool at 45 <laughs> Ips or whatever, um, is nobody's, again, nobody's there to tell you, you can't do it that way. <laughs> yeah, nobody's going to tell me. I was already too stubborn. I was in my early 30s. I already knew that I was older than any Beatle. I could do whatever the fuck I wanted. Do whatever the hell you please. Don, this was an absolute pleasure, my friend. I oh, can't good. tell you how much I enjoyed this. Well, Matt, anytime you want to talk, call me up. We don't have to take We it. don't even have to record it. <laughs> there he goes, the amazing Don Dixon. How fun was that? Oh, my God. Those stories were incredible. It was so great. What a what a treat. What a genuinely sweet human being. What a great episode. I, I, I thank you so much to Don and to my friend John Carroll for helping make that happen. Uh, I am uh, over the moon excited about getting to talk about those records with the man who was in the room while they were made. Uh, don't forget to uh, head on over to the blog at whatamimaking.substack.com. You can sign up for a free or a paid subscription today. All that's going to happen is you're going to get an awesome thing in your email inbox every morning that you can read with your coffee. Uh, this thing runs on your paid subscriptions, gang. I really need to keep that money coming in. Please consider signing up today if you enjoy what I do. Uh, you can sign up for as little as 5 bucks a month. Again, whatamimaking.substack.com. Dot com. Come on over and uh, be a part of the community and uh, throw a couple shekels my way. It really, really helps. Don't forget to join the uh, Bracket Challenge and get your votes in. Make sure you're paying attention to all the updates from the road. And I will see you on the next one, my friends. Bye-bye. Special nerdy episode of Maddie C and his ADHD and REM.